Welcome to Pathfinder Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Christian. Good morning, class. You may be seated. Welcome to the Book Fair. Book Fair is where we go over some of the Pathfinder Tales novels published by Tor Publishing. Full disclosure, we were given review copies by Diana Griffin of Tor Publishing. Thank you very much for giving us these review copies. We were not paid to do these. Their agreement was this, that she would send us review copies and that we would receive them. That was the complete agreement. These will be our honest opinions. Today's tale is Hell Knight, written by Leanne Merciel, which I really hope I'm pronouncing correctly. Yes, the author is a blend of German and Korean, so it's two languages which I have just, I'm baffled by pronouncing anything. You know what, honestly, English. How many times in this show have we said, is that how you say Hell Knight? I just, I don't, uh, I don't know. Uh, Leanne has a website, www.leannemerciel.com. She has written a few other fantasy titles. Uh, she, her specialty is dark fantasy. Um, she has written a few other things in the Pathfinder universe, a couple other books in the Pathfinder Tales series. She's also written a book for uh, dra- in the Dragon Age setting uh, by Bioware, another thing similar to Pathfinder Tales, but for the uh, Dragon Age setting, and a few other books. Unlike some of our past authors where they have a series of books uh this book while not like second in a series does feature a character that she's used in one of her short stories edros edaris and here we go we're off to the races why don't we talk about the characters this book has uh well before we talk about the characters let's talk about the setting because i think the setting is very important sure uh this book takes place in the land of chaliax Chelyax is a really weird place. It's hard to describe and make sense of it. Basically, it was set up with the help of devils. Devils being the lawful evil of the fiends of the nethery plains. Thus, the society has been very much shaped like that. It's a very lawful evil society. And although the people of the society work with devils and they owe devils, being goaded into, say, sleeping with a devil or working too closely with them is seen as a weakness as you're succumbing to their power. So there's a lot of mixture of like, we do like devils, they gave us power, but we don't really like devils. And then we don't like Hellspawn either because they're from devils. Before before we continue any more about this, I need to make something very clear. Um, I am the worst. And I started reading this in the summer, got to, I don't know, like 100 some odd pages, then didn't pick it up again till this January. So there was a section of time that passed where I, I, I'll i be a lot more, I have a lot more to say about the second half of the book for some reason. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So forgive me for my uh, dash of memory for the beginning uh, 100 pages. And I will say that, that I doubt, it's definitely not for me, and I hope not for Caleb either. It wasn't because the book wasn't interesting or compelling. It's simply because of time constraints and having to do other things. That is correct. I actually really, really enjoyed this author's style. I really liked it. Oh, yeah. I love the writing style of this book. I can flip to any page and just find one sentence, one paragraph where I just love the way it's written. I just like the way the words are arranged. I like the words used, and it describes something in a way that I would have never imagined it. And is just pleasant to read. Oh, I I was writing down just every time I'm like, ooh, that's a cool sentence. That's a cool sentence. And I looked at my page. I'm like, well, I've written down the first four chapters so far. That's great. <laughs> so I, I had to stop myself. I just love the way she would describe things. So there are three, arguably four, major characters to the story. The first being Gerald. Um, She is a tiefling hell knight. So right off the, right off the bat there, we got kind of a... 
hard to grasp character if you don't know a lot about the setting, you don't know a lot about tieflings, and if you don't know a lot about Hell Knights. Christian, I didn't know pretty much any of that. I just knew what a tiefling was. Hell Knight sounded cool, so I was like, okay, let's see where this goes. Where, say, a paladin is into the service of a good deity and adheres to a strict set of laws, and, say, an anti-paladin is in service to an evil deity and just kind of do bad things... Hell Knights are specifically sworn to law, and they are sworn to Asmodeus, the king of hell, and he is the most lawful evil of all things to be lawful evil. Uh, They model themselves after the armies of hell, and they follow the strictest rank order file laws that they can. They are about doing what is good by the law, not is what is doing necessarily correct, what is right, what is good. Mm -hmm. The way I kind of broke it down in my head was that the... You know, like a paladin is lawful good. A hell knight would be more towards lawful neutral, sometimes lawful evil. But I think just for the sake of making things different, lawful neutral. And then the demons that we'll see that take part in this book are the lawful evils. So that's the three sections that you could be lawful. A good way I like to think of it is that uh, people who are good, paladins, they think that the strong should protect and serve the weak. Um, the Hell Knight Order, although this isn't, you know, across the board for them, because there's actually many different Hell Knight Orders, are more in the belief that the strong should rule over the weak, but not mistreat them. Like, use that order to make everything fall in line and work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are into mistreating themselves, because there is all sorts of different, like, terrible punishments they exact on themselves for messing up. Ooh, did I have a terrible, did I have a bad thought that I lost after this woman? Better eat some acid. They talk about, like, people's teeth that were destroyed. And he's like, oh, yep, he must have been the Hell Knight of the Order of the Scourge because they do that, that, self, that stuff to themselves all the time. Anyway, we've gotten past nothing for her. She's a tiefling <laughs> Hell Knight of the Order of the Scourge investigating the murder of Othondo Sil- Salvarian. We've got just, I'm going to fail at every single name. Yeah, she's been a longtime investigator. Um, she's actually pulled from outside the city that this murder happens because she's really good at her job. And there's also implications that the Hell Knight Order that's in the city had something to do with the murder. So they call on Gerald to come into the city in Chelyax, the city of West Crown in Chelyax, which, you know, I won't go into specifics about how, where that is. But she's pulled from the outside. Um, she has her own plights. She had to deal with discrimination being a tiefling and found that joining the Hell Knight Order was something that, you know, people would respect her for that. They see her in her armor and they know that even though she's a tiefling, she's been through hardships to work hard and protect people. The Hell Knights are very much both feared and very respected in Chelyax. They, they mention how, like, she is an investigator. She She's not, though she is capable fighter, she is a capable fighter, we certainly see that in the novel, that she mentioned herself, that's not what she was geared towards. She was most often an investigator instead of, a, you know, a, a, um, a, a guy marching at the gates. She has a daughter who has no sign at all of her demon physiology, so she gave her up to live free of tiefling prejudice. Which I think is really what sold me on her, to see that Gerald had this heart. Because when I heard Hell Knight having only preconceived notions of the term, just hearing the word Hell Knight and then what comes to my mind, uh, I could very quickly just put her off, okay, so she's just going to be pretty much like a sort of evil person, huh? No, not at all. They tell you right off the bat, no, she has a heart. She's willing to sacrifice something very important to her just for the sake of somebody else. And I think that also kind of showed maybe it was part of, not part of her, not part of her training, but showed that like 
she is a person who was able to get through the Hell Knight training and take the sort of sacrifice it takes to be a Hell Knight to to live this structured life because she just has what it takes. She's made that sacrifice already, the biggest sacrifice I think she would view in her whole life of, of not really living with her daughter. However, she does have a relationship with her daughter. She writes letters to her. She pretends to be like an aunt or not even an aunt, just a friend. She doesn't want to put any blood there. She They say that she brought the daughter to the... Uh you know, wherever they put her, I don't remember what they right. called it, but quote unquote, the orphanage. Um, <laughs> they say that she found her and then brought her there. So it's like, hey, this person saved you and they talk to each other so often. Our second main character is a guy named Edros Salvarian. Oh, that's a last name we heard before. That's correct, because it's Othano's older brother who was exiled from Cheliax. He left and became a paladin of Iomade, fighting against the demons of the World Wound. The World Wound, this was an interesting place. This was kind of, I'm right, I was about to say a quote I wanted to steal, and it was, it was actually from describing what was happening at the World Wound. The World Wound was like, hey, hell's, oh, you got your hell on my earth. You got your earth in my hell. Oh! And there's like a, a giant, a ever-expanding <laughs> wound in the world, a whole, a, a, a portal almost. This is a World of Warcraft. They are coming through the portal. Oh, no, they're orcs. What's happening? Now, Caleb, I have to correct you. You said hell. I think the abyss is coming. Sure, I know the difference. Because there's demons. But, I mean, do you, <laughs> why don't you say, explain it so just you know, the listeners would be on the same page as me, who I'm obviously on your page. Well, I have the little, they have a glossary. I love glossaries. Uh, World Wound, a constantly expanding region overrun by demons a century ago, held at bay by the efforts of the Mandevian Crusaders. So, Othando Severian and Adara Severian, or Selvarian, excuse me, are nobles in Chaliax. Um, not like super big nobles, but they are pretty important. Um, Adaris was exiled, and that's part of his backstory that we don't immediately know, but for some reason he was exiled from Chaliax and it had something to do with a rebellion. Adaris left to the World Wound and became a paladin of Iomade to fight against the demons there. Uh, in light of his brother's murder and being the last surviving heir of his noble line, he is called back to Cheliax that gets involved with the investigation withdrawal. Let me read this this paragraph to you, this, this thing, this example of the author's writing style. A gust of wind tore across his tent, dimpling the canvas walls and rattling the lamps so that their flames left black ribbons of soot along their glassy prisons. The wind smelled of brimstone and burning blood, as it too often did out here by the world wound. When was the last time he had felt a clean breeze or breathed air that wasn't poisoned with madness and despair? When was the last time he'd walked through gardens given over to the luxury of flowers instead of crowded with scraggly, stunted crops that sustained Mendev's defenders? And then that's like every sentence. <laughs> I'm serious. It, just constant class in her writing. The next major character is, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Valine. Do you agree, Caleb? Valine? I think, I, you remember in our... Our book, Bloodbound, how is like, I pronounced it this way. I know it was wrong. It's nowhere spelled. It's nowhere spelled this way. What was it? Um, Considine. I constantly yes, went Constantine. Or that, that. This is what I did with, with Velen or Veline. Well, what your brain comprehends it as doesn't matter. Veline is, she comes in, I'd say, like a third into the story. She's not initially a character. She is also of noble lineage, but... She is from House Thrun, and House Thrun is very much is involved with very hellish, sacrilege kind of stuff. They are very important in Cheliax, but they definitely have more of an evil side to them, and that's... She is a Diabloist, which means she specifically works with devils, hand-in-hand hand with devils, does rituals, bad evil rituals to do things to grant House Thrun power. 
she is actually from Adaris's past. They had known each other before, and she was involved with the rebellion that got Adaris exiled from West Crown and from Chelyax in general. She was actually a traitor that betrayed him, or at least that's what we're told in the initial part of the story. She betrayed, she was kind of like a spy and betrayed them to the government, which then exiled them. And of course, they were also lovers, and there's a actually wonderful subplot with that. I wouldn't really even say plot, subplot, more like a side plot. Valen was my favorite character by far, and that subplot was my favorite plot by far. <laughs> I loved this character. I loved... It was cool having a character that was pretty much evil, but still trying to... Uh, no, that's actually that's actually not... That's what I liked about it, is they didn't try to constantly be like, oh, but she's a good person, no, 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 but you know, she's kind of cool, right? Yeah, maybe. They didn't do that. I think towards the end, they earned that. But it was never right off the bat. I loved her character. I love what the... I said they. I do it every time we read the book. I, I, act, I act like a team of experts sat down in a panel and said, let's write this book. We've got it. We've got what the kids want. <laughs> That's what kids say. Valen, right? They love it. They love these words. They love these weird names. But I loved... She was complex to me. And she, she... You know what she was? Oh, my gosh. This is why I loved her. Because it's what I strive to be in my life. Every new person I meet, I act like this. When they figure out I'm not this, I'm like, oh, no, they saw through me. I'm... Uh, is She is a Sundere. 100%. Please, no, Kayla. Yes. No, that's what she is. She's like, nah, it's not like I care about you or anything, but I'm super going to sacrifice try and make sure you're okay because I kind of do care about you. No, don't tell anyone you've seen me. You see through my, my shell. But I don't think it is like a shell. She honestly doesn't care about anyone and will let them die except for Edoras. I think he kind of fights inside her to be like, but you are a bit of a different person, aren't you? This is where at least a little bit of of good comes out of you. He almost kind of fosters it and almost kind of pulls it out, which is a big theme. And we'll talk about that more when we get to the story synopsis. We have one more major character and her name is Sachal. There's not a lot I can say about her because she is very relevant to the plot later in the book. But suffice to say, what you learn in the very beginning of the book is that she is a tiefling and she is a assassin of some kind. She is seen being hired to do a job to kill people and she does it. That's the very first thing you see of her. And then she comes in later in the story as a relatively major character. Which is actually a little uh, bit confusing for me in the beginning of the book. When we brought this person up, I'm like, oh, interesting main character. Again, all I heard was the word Hell Knight. So I'm like, probably a Hell Knight. And then she kills a Hell Knight. And then we're not talking about her for another 200 pages. And I'm like, well, uh huh? Sachel is probably the least complex of the characters. Assassin really describes her to a T. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely um, rather shallow. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but I think Sachel was a bit shallow. I think she served. We'll talk more about her when we actually talk about the plot, but I think. That was purposeful. The fact that she didn't change throughout the story was actually a very purposeful thing. And I mean, I appreciated it. I like, you no, know, she wasn't a very complex character, but not every character can be complex. So we have one more main character, actually, Christian. I'm going to correct you. Uh, but I'm not okay. surprised you didn't list this person as a main character because they really don't come to the story to literally pass half the book. And by the way, this book is about 400 pages long. Uh, and that is Lictor, which is an awesome name for uh, pretty much like the arch bad guy of, of the book. The person behind all the scenes. I thought Lictor was like his title. Lictor Schokner. Oh, I, I thought say that was his first name. Maybe you are right. Maybe it's Lictor Schokner. Maybe it's Lictor is the title. Because I'm pretty sure they call him the Lictor at times. I could be wrong. I have absolutely no idea. Regardless. I should know about this book I've read, but I don't. I, I thought he was the Lictor Schokner. Regardless, he's pretty cool. And we'll talk about him again as we get the story. Because talking about him now would be kind of like, ah, uh, 
is he's really not in it towards the end till the end but now we're going to get really into the story so if you were hoping to to avoid any sort of spoilers it's it's game over now we're going to talk about the whole book this book could actually be described pretty easily i think like despite being a rather political driven investigation kind of story like, it wouldn't be hard for me to give the bare bones of the plot. Sure. Do you agree, Caleb? I agree. Yep, definitely. Matter of fact, it's one of my only disappointments of the book. I can love it against it is I think that that plot wasn't very deep. I think, boy, did she take it to places that I wouldn't expect with the with the bare bones of the plot to be able to go to all these places. She definitely made the best of it. So the initial set of murders we witness is done using a magical artifact. Setchel um, gathers up three... Hellspawn citizens of Chaliax, just kind of commoners, and she quote-unquote murders them with this claw, this magical claw, that pulls their hearts out of their chest, but kind of turns them into a jewel, and they aren't really dead, they're just kind of in a comatose state, you would say. They're really neither alive nor dead. And, you know, those... There's many other murders. A lot of Hellspawn are being murdered in this fashion, and Gerald and Edaris are investigating to try and find out who's doing these murders, why they're doing these murders, and see if they can bring them to justice. Valene also gets called in to help. Which I just remembered, why was Othando murdered then? Because he, was he just... He had half of the, um, amulet. Oh, correct. Of course, you jump ahead. I was, you didn't edit that out. How dare you? How dare you? We've yet to jump ahead in this entire thing, and now you've broken our, our pattern. We go immediately into the next chapter, chapter two... It introduces us to Edoras, and he's over at the World Moon. He gets the message, oh, no, your brother's been killed. Yo, you got to come back because you're the last man of the house. You got to be the man of the house, son. And uh, he doesn't say son because it's not his dad. And he's a super cool paladin dude. No one ever talked to him like that. And actually really liked what the author did here. In a short time, I actually grew to feel moved when he finally said to his troops, my troops dismissed the last order he, he ever gave. That was I was like, wow, you you did it just a few pages. You made me feel like like I was with this guy through his whole, you know, championing crusade against the the evil here in the world wound. I really like uh that was done very efficiently and well. So once Gerald and Adaris meet up, they start colluding with each other, trying to figure out what's going on, and the main thing that's being pointed to, and something that's mentioned very early in the story, is Castle Gastano, I think it is. Gastelano? Ah. Citadel Gesteno, Gesteno. Citadel Gesteno was the host of a heretical order of hell knights that were sieged upon for what they had done. The Order of the Crux. The Order of the Crux. So all the other hell knights banded together. They were doing something heretical, and that's part of the mystery. What were they doing in Citadel Gesteno? That was a cool part of the book, trying to, like, having that hinted at, and, like, everyone knows about it. We don't really talk about it. It was a very, very bad time, and uh, Edoras' father was involved in it in some way, and he thinks maybe somehow this is connected. This is really the only thing my father ever did that would have created some sort of enemy that would have killed his son. But what everyone knows, and what strikes me as weird is that they just let this sit, is that after Citadel Gesteno was sieged, the Order of the Crux defeated and the place laid bare. The next day, it rose as a ghost citadel. Mm-hmm. And people just kind of turn a blind eye to that. 
Right. I think it's one of those things where, well, we marched on, sacrificed hundreds of troops, and destroyed a very well-positioned castle. It talks about it's on three, it's it's walled in three sides of a mountain, and so they had to just. There was only one way to go to it, and they knew where they were coming from, and it was a very tough march. But the Hell Knights are tough as a tough people, and the order of. Um, the scourge, you know, earned their name and they scourged it from the earth. They destroyed it through blood, sweat and tears. And just like the idea of that was awesome. And I'm glad they kind of let that linger. She like let that linger and eventually kind of got a little more into it, but always left enough to your imagination because I think it'd be very difficult to explain that the way she built it up. But when it rises up from the ground, what do you do? It's like, oh, we destroyed it and it came back. I'm guessing marching on it's not going to work again. But they kind of discover, oh, this 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 ethereal not ethereal this ancient undead uh, castle now is its entire boundaries. They've never seen undead marched out of the castle and try to take over the world. There seems to be some sort of limit that the undead stick to the castle. So they kind of keep an eye on it and do not engage past the castle boundaries. And it's far enough away removed from the city that people aren't just like, oh well, let's not live near the undead city that might march on us at any time. And also what is known about the Citadel is that the leader of the Order of the Crux, Lichter Schochner, rose again with the Citadel, but he's trapped there. The Order of the Scourge confined him to this, to relive his sins, to be confined in the prison that they made for him. And they just kind of let him rot up there because he can't affect the world. How could he? But then, you know, like totally what's happening is, you know, his his fault. <laughs> and I think this fits this 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 lawful order. Like we carried out the letter of the law. The order of the law said he's supposed to die and he died for his sins. What's happening to him now isn't part of our jurisdiction. We, 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 we carried out the judgment as the law has said. I want to mention something about um, before we move further because it's kind of it's in like chapter two or three. Uh, when we learn enough about Edoras, the author gives you just enough to make you to want to know more. Kind of mentions the the past revolution without really ever going into detail. Just enough that like he was there and something he got betrayed by somebody and it ended up not working and he had to run away for it to, to save his honor. Uh, not to save his honor, to save his skin. We later find out that was Vel, and that's what makes that an interesting thing. But every time, can, can, I hope you can agree with me here, every time there was a minor short-term character, uh, the pirate in chapter two, the librarian, the wizard, a boatman uh, in chapter three, each one of these characters were deep in their own way. They were interesting, they were clever, and then they were gone. They weren't like when I do my games, oh, yep, you just go to the shopkeeper and the most I'll ever do is give them a funny voice and then we move on. She gave <laughs> them each a little bit of character and I really enjoyed that. That continued through the rest of the book. And I think it just goes along with what we were saying with her excellent writing style. There's definitely no throwaway characters in this game. There's no one that's just there as a set piece. Everyone has their reason for being in the world that she created and they have an effect on it and that was shown through these very apt, though short, very apt descriptions of people that even though they weren't major characters, you felt like they had a life, they had a purpose. You know, they live in Cheliax. What do they do? I have a good understanding of that now. You know what else this author, and welcome to the Praise the Author Hour. Um, something else I really liked about this author, we won't tell anybody, she's actually our best friend and very close friend. And we just want to lift her up. Please buy her book. Oh gosh, please buy the book. Um, no, that's all I. She did a good job making things realistic. Like there's a part where uh, Gerald is 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 moving 
some of the comatose tieflings, right? And when it's happening, she's walking a long way in her armor, which she's wearing, by the way, like all the time. There's a point where she takes it off and Edoras is like, uh, she like looks naked without her armor. She needs to have her armor. She's weird. Her voice sounds weird without coming through her helmet. Please put your armor back on. You're scaring me. Right. <laughs> it said like the armor was digging into her shoulder and kind of getting under her, her, I know this isn't the right word, but like they often describe the skin kind of like chitin, like these kind of panels that kind of go over almost scales, digging into these scales and just, but she's like, I have to, I've sold her through. I am not going to even flinch or show anyone that happens to look at me like I might be in pain. I'm just not going to show it because that's not what a hell knight does. And so it described later, she kind of like, oh, she was so happy to get the tiefling off of her shoulder and was happy when she was alone to take it off and rub where she had hurt herself some with some aloe or something on it. And it's like, thank you. That's that's really realistic. And and there's a point where uh, he talks about Edros and his, he lost his um, his mother. And there's a quote here, his mother's um, wild grief at losing a daughter to stillbirth and the listless shadow she had become afterward. That, that's realistic. Sometimes that can be what a moving and terrible experience that can be. And in one short sentence, it's like, wow, you did that so much justice. And I didn't have to hear nine chapters about how he lost his mother and it was tough. It's like, you know what? That's enough. And it was mentioned one or two other times. And there was just a lot of cool, realistic things about that. When he's talking about how do you, how Ed Ross feels about it, he talks about a mother that wasn't there made his life easier and harder in ways and that was realistic you could have i mean i think someone like an amateur like me would quickly focus on one of the things and really try to explain it like man it was so hard with his mother out there or gosh she was so overbearing we're glad she was gone but the realistic part of it is if this happens in real life there's there's the catch-22 that you don't want to admit to yourself it was a little bit easier when she wasn't there that i could go and become this champion of a revolution and it wasn't as hard for me uh, but there was a lot of ways when it was harder for me that she was gone and I didn't have her anymore because I had lost her to the listless shadow. When it talked about his father, Abello, his features had grown thinner and sharper and his once gold hair had gone to gray. In his youth, Abello Severian had been a lion. In his silver years, he had become a wolf. A way to still say your father's threatening, but maybe just a little bit in a different way, more in a cunning way. I really, really like that. I think he calls him also the old bear. There's, there's so many instances of small scenes like that where the characters are so very human that she examines the nuances of the experiences they go through and how it makes them feel and their reactions to that. And this is probably something I should have mentioned earlier, but like going over the character descriptions and even reading like the synopsis on the back of the book, I use the word edgy a lot. And just, just listening to the synopsis, you're like, this sounds like this, the edgiest thing ever. We have a tiefling hell knight, mm-hmm. special snowflake. We got, oh, a paladin's in love with Diabloist. Oh, that's not a storyline that's been done before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, when something's edgy, it isn't deep. They use these nuanced ideas like you know, a paladin falling in love with a Diabloist, but that's the depth of that relationship. It's not really deep. It's just like, ooh, isn't that an interesting idea that it's happening, but that's all we are. Right. Whereas, you know, our tiefling hell knight, like, look at me, I'm a tiefling and I, I do things that I'm not supposed to do. And that's the depth of my character. But these characters were not like that at all. Anything, any storyline can be done if done correctly, it could be valid. And this was just a perfect example that, you know, just looking at these, I was like, wow, I'm, go- I'm probably going to hate this book. This sounds so edgy and snowflakey, but all the characters are just so very deep and very real. And none of them feel like their title or what they are is carrying them. It's their past experiences that were built up throughout the book and what they go through during the book. Mm-hmm. 
So back to the story. Edoras comes back. He he meets with his father, which is a really cool scene uh, because fitting with that like realistic descriptions, he pretty much hated his father. But in every time his father would like try to cut him with his words, Edoras would think something hateful and then not say it because he knew it wouldn't help. He knew if I just like let this venom come out, we're not getting any further. I'm paladin. I have an investigation to do. I lost my brother. I need to figure out what's happening. And so he would just go forward with what he needed to do to continue. And I thought that was actually that was actually a nice little scene that only lasted part of a chapter. So he, he meets with his father. He gets the info he needs to have. And then like from that point on, I don't think he's ever really mentioned again. It's pretty much it acts as if because his mother's still alive somewhere outside in the countryside, I think, just gone as, as it described the list of shadow. And his father is this just he's 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 out of the picture now from that point forward. And it's now pretty much I am the 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 king of the castle. I am the last remaining bastion of my family, which in this book, in this city anyway, was important. A family name as we get later into some of the politics of the city was important. He was the last one to uphold it. And that meant something to him enough that he was considering walking away from you know, being a paladin forever. He was considering. He hadn't, he hadn't yet decided. But, of course, he meets with Jeral. Jeral, Jeral. Again, we're just going to be doing this all day. All day. Uh, and it was so funny. When those two ever interacted, I loved it in the beginning of the book. I was, like, squeeing to myself. There's a quote here. Jeral shook her head in disbelief. She had forgotten that Iomedeans could be so foolish, sometimes thinking it was worth bringing down the pillars of civilization if that meant everyone could stand equal amid the rubble. Uh, just always hearing them kind of, like... Okay, Paladin. Okay, Hell Knight. Let's. But that didn't. They didn't become the whole of their relationship, and that lasted, I think, a relatively short time in the book, which is great. Just enough to be interesting, not enough to be the stereotype that you were talking about before that makes you roll your eyes. He's a Paladin. She's a Hell Knight. Let's see what wacky adventures yeah. they get into this time. <laughs> Play the intro to Odd Couple. <laughs> the investigation is going right, and uh, you know, blah blah blah. We need to figure out what's going on. Oh, there are tieflings. What was this weird crystal thing? Oh, that's exactly how the book's written. And <laughs> then I began to, honestly, like a little of my interest began to sort of wane. And then the introduction of Alain. And that came at the perfect time to reinvigorate this book for me, this story and my interest. And this interesting character came in. And then as soon as you heard, oh, there's a little bit of history between her and Edoras. Oh, what's that? She was the one that betrayed him. And I was like, ooh, I was like, hit the bell, Jerry. I'm ready to, to run at him with my fist. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> she and you knew she loved every minute of, of the fact that he had to sit there and take her help because he needed her help. She was assigned, I think, either by her, the chief of her family. Well, what family she was, she, was she part of again? Thrun. Thrun. House Thrun. They uh, in some way, I forget exactly how because uh, it was part of the beginning of the book. They had an interest, but they assigned her to investigate. And Endros is just like, oh, no, please, no, not this. And she's like, hey, buddy. And he's like, oh, please. oh hey, I don't know. Loved it. And again, it was just enough to be that funny moment. And then it moved on and it developed something so much more. And then there's a good portion of the book now that's going to be describing the city and what they're in. And the city is very interesting to me in this. That it is, it is border on the on evil and on uh, undead. Uh, but they they refuse to move. There's history in the city. It used to be the capital, I think, of Chiliax or wherever. And they, it's like people refuse to leave. We mentioned this a little bit in in Bloodbound. And they they had developed all sorts of ways. I, I think there was like an outer wall, like a Titan wall, and there was they have these big 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 pillars, and on top of them giant braziers. 
that uh, have a magical fire that keep the undead at bay at night or the evil at bay. I forget if it's undead or devils or whatever it is, maybe a mix, uh, but it keeps the city safe. And I loved that. And th- there was definitely two things that the book wanted to let you know about. One was that there was a stark difference between the poor and the rich. There was, there was a noticeable difference. And two, hey, are you a tiefling? Well, then you're either a slave or we walk over you, which was important because one of our characters is a tiefling. And that's why she sent her daughter away and all that. Well, I don't think tieflings were necessarily slaves. They were just kind of discriminated against because their bloodline is seen as, well, your ancestors before you, they were seduced by devils. You must be weak. Your bloodline must be weak. But there are slaves in Sheliax, and part of the city was the halflings that were occasionally mentioned. This was one of my favorite things, actually, about the book. Halflings in Sheliax are slaves. They are actually slaves. And neither the paladin likes it, and neither the ha- the Hell Knight likes it. Neither of the main characters enjoy the fact that there are slaves in their society. And at one point, they're actually, I think they go out to lunch, and their waiter is a halfling who is a slave. And there's almost like a meta moment where the uh, Adaris is obviously angry about the fact that they're slaves because he doesn't agree with it. And Gerald basically says to him, like, we cannot right every wrong in the world. We are here to solve your brother's murder, mm. and we can't let ourselves get distracted by things that we can't possibly fix. Mm. And I think having issues in there, – there was a lot of examples of this, but having issues in a world that the characters cannot fix make the world feel so much more alive. Mm-hmm. And make it seem that much more deep. Oh my gosh, getting players to realize this can be a nightmare sometimes when they go around trying to fix every wrong and it's like – I think at least once in almost every one of my, you know, campaigns, I'm always like, I have a character explain to them at some point, listen, if we're going to try to fix everything that's wrong with the world, we'll never get anywhere even close to where we're trying to get to. Good luck. And I'm glad to see that struggle here in novel form. And even after that scene, we still occasionally see, you know, just kind of casually mentioned a halfling doing something in service to someone else throughout the book. And I love that little detail. Definitely. It almost felt like a meta kind of speech, almost like Gerald was talking to the audience, like, no, we're not going to rescue the halflings. Right. Every once in a while, there would be almost a sides where we'd get another look into the brain of these characters. And and one of these came up before we really moved on with the story. And that's with um, hearing Gerald's sort of her teacher's explanation of the of the commonly known seven deadly sins. And she's like, they're not they're not deadly sins. They're missing the mark. And each one was kind of like, you need to look at the facets of this. I want to read a couple of lines to you. Pride without resentment never led anyone to murder. Gluttony and lust could be sated without crime. Sloth tended to prevent violence. Fear, guilt, and corrosive jealousy, the sins seldom cited by the priests, those could drive an honest citizen to kill. As could love, which few people considered a sin at all, but was deadlier than any of the others, because love could carve a space for treachery where nothing else would. Love of country, of political ideals, of imagined virtue, those could erode loyalties and divide otherwise impregnable hearts, which is something I think we learn with Edros and Valin. Which of those might lead a hell knight astray? Any of them could. She'd seen them all over the years, but some were more common than the others. Anger she discarded immediately. Anger led to tavern knifings and bloody rages between lovers. It had spurred some of the ugliest crimes she'd seen in her career, but it burned too hot to have produced something like this. What she'd seen in Rago Sadar, which is where she found the, the tieflings without their hearts, were the leavings of a crime planned and executed in cold blood. 
Fear and greed were possible, but unlikely. It was a Hell Knight's honor to embrace death in the service of duty and accept hardship and privation as tests of strength. Some always failed in those ideals, but not many. Love seemed improbable as well. The life of un- the life of iron disciple imposed by the Hell Knight orders left scant opportunity for that delicate flower to flourish. That left guilt and resentment, and those two could be fertile ground indeed. This is where she's trying to figure out what was the motivation of the Hell Knight dead body they found amongst these uh, tieflings. Because, of course, the Hell Knight was betrayed by Setchel. I loved that. That was that was so interesting to see the look down there. Because I think we've heard a million times the paladin and what would lead him astray, right? To hear this kind of turn to the Hell Knight, I think was very, very interesting. I love that term, uh, uh, left scant opportunity for that delicate flower to flourish. But Ven- Velm, however, uh, the Diabolist, she uh, was someone who I think... At the face seemed very shallow, very like, I present myself like this and this is who I am. But you knew, it made it very clear that she's presenting herself that way. You knew there was more deep to her. She was the one that would stab you with a smile, right? And she had this, what, this was almost like the reflection of her that you could see in front of you was this creepy devil dog thing that was black, shadowy, uh, just a real monster. And there was a point where Edros is out there and he's defending because he was just struggling with what's going on, what's going on inside of him, what's happening in his life. That he's out there and he just needs he needs to fall back to something. He needs to fall down to defending the good. That's what paladins do. And he found some drunkard on the streets out when it was night and the braziers were being uh, lit in the city so that everyone had to go back into the city to survive. And there's someone out there who was almost certainly going to die when the creeping things in the shadows came out at night to the edges of the city to out where people would go during the daytime that is no longer safe and he was out there and he was defending and he would nearly die except out came Velen with her dog and saved him which is kind of like oh now I'm indebted to her great so their investigation continues right and Velen kind of assists and aids and when they're trying to figure out what was this thing that was stolen that my father owned that the assassin killed my brother for they end up i forget how because it's partly in the book they get to this secret library uh where i don't know if it's held by the hell knights i think it is and it was because they knew maybe there was some connections this is the biggest thing my father ever did was march on citadel gastiano or whatever it was called gasteno marching on it there's another thing i just i said it's gastiano now in my head so they kind of investigate what happened there and he finds two boxes that were related to it and he pulls out one, and the library is really well described. I'm not gonna, we'll, we'll be here all day if I just keep describing everything. It was a cool scene. I enjoyed it. But he finds one box, and he finds these these crystals, these hearts, and some of them were dark, and some of them weren't. And then another box, which in the log described, I think it's where they first mentioned the devil chain, the devil heart chain. And mm-hmm. he opens it up, and it's empty. And this is where they're finally beginning to piece together that there is this device. This thing that could make the hearts of tieflings into these crystals. And it was broken into two. And one half was put into this this library, these archives. And the other half, his father held. And that's what the assassin came for. And that's why the assassin killed his brother. So now it went from what, what, what was taken from my house to why was it taken? And to bringing justice to the situation. They were led to that little secret library. I don't even think it was secret. I think it was actually just like, you know, part of the storage area for the Hell Knights. Because the Hell Knight that Sechel killed, that helped Sechel, Mm -hmm. um, he was supposed to be guarding that. Uh Oh, so that's how he was able to get the first part of the chain, which was the Mm -hmm. kind of beginning transaction of the book. And I think that's where we start to learn about what the 
order the crux was doing. And there's actually a lot of other boxes with many belongings in it. And they start to talk about the order the crux was taking citizens, mostly Hellspawn, and was arresting them. They thought that the Hellspawn taint was something that had to be put down, that because they were tieflings, that the devilish or demonish nature inside them would eventually one day be wrought to violence and hurt people around them. So they were taking a preventative measure in gathering up these tieflings and imprisoning them. And what I really like about that scene is that it's Gerald going through all this evidence that they pulled back from Citadel Gasteno. And she's going through like boxes of shoes that they pulled off the victims and boxes of all their personal effects. And she's not really, well, she's obviously upset that her people were being killed. But one of the things that she really harps on is that as Hell Knights, when you take someone in for a crime, their punishment, the punishment bolt doled out to them is supposed to be in repetence to the crime they committed. Mm -hmm. If you, you know, catch a thief who had stolen gold, you take the gold that he has on him now and you use it as reparations for the people that he stole it from. Mm -hmm. If someone is in prison and they had a life of violence, well, then they they are put to work to try and um, make reparations for what they had done in their life. In the case of these citizens, they hadn't done anything wrong, but, you know, they were born the way they were. So she was just discussing that they were taking their belongings and not doing anything appropriate for the crime that they never really even committed. They were just taking all their belongings and doing nothing with it. Right. So that's where you're saying what the, what are the pretenses they're arresting is under all these small crimes and, and just hundreds of tieflings for these small crimes and, and we're not even really getting justice. This, this has to be a sham. What is the real reason? And, and something she definitely suggests in that scene is that if they, if all these people were brought in on legitimate charges, I could say nothing about it. I could not be upset. She would be okay with her people being in prison and killed mm-hmm. were it justified, but she doesn't feel like it was. And it's also, you know, hinted at here that whatever happened in Castle Gastano is very secretive. People don't talk about it. People don't know the full details of exactly what went on there. And the question is, is it just because it was a, a, a bad, a bad affair? The fact that there was such a terrible march the same reason like i don't think my grandpa has any reason he was drafted into the korean war and he 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 did you know it's like the whole vietnam thing where i did what i was ordered to right and we just don't talk about it anymore i I probably didn't even do anything wrong did i even do anything wrong i don't want to talk about it it's just there was it was just horrific it was war it was a terrible war i don't want to talk about it and i think there was that was like could that be the reason was this death march just too terrible to to even talk about or was there something more sinister behind it which is sort of what you figured out oh no there was something way more sinister behind it um and then this is where the book really begins to delve into what was my favorite part of the book the relationship between edoras and valen i loved it like you said it was deep in ways that surprised me and while he's like drawn to her, he, as he's being with her, he's reminded of why he had this old fling with her. But he's so struggled by two things. One, she betrayed me. She stabbed me in the back. And two, she is a diabolist and I'm a paladin. I cannot possibly be with. And he knows what kind of person she He has no uh, self-deception that maybe she's just a good person. No, he knows it. He's seen it and he's, his, his back still bears the scars of it. He knows it, but he's, he loves her anyway. There's part of it. He just cannot resist her in some ways. He remembers what he had with her. And he, just as he was drawn to then, he's drawn to the same parts for now. And now she has those things in spades as she's grown up and developed. And he 
he would struggle with so much, he would go to his priest, as it were. And and he found this, again, it was another throwaway character, it was this young priest, right? And he was trying to talk to him, and this young priest would kind of give him advice that, um, I don't know if I wrote down here, but essentially, a lot of what he said, I'm like, this was kind of weak, honestly. I'm like, I don't know if this is exactly the right way to kind of consolidate uh, the feelings of, can I love an evil person? Because he was kind of like, oh, I, I, oh, I... I slept with her, and he's like, so? Well, she's evil, and I'm good. So, did you lie to her? No. Did you do what she wanted? Yeah. Did you ever force her to do something she didn't want to do? No. Then what's the problem? I kind of felt problems with that, but uh, that's like I'm nitpicking here. Overall, there was like a good struggle there, and and there's a part where he's fighting with his own mind, and he says, it's impossible. But even as he said it, Edoras found himself drawn to the idea. What if he could win her over? What if knowing what she was, he could change her? Wow. When we were talking about something that's realistic, talk about problems I've had in past relationships where I thought, oh, I can change the person. Of course, they were they were my younger relationships. I think that's a, a foolish mistake the young make of I'm going to change this person. And I think one of the advices, if anyone does any sort of marital counseling or premarital counseling is, oh, no. Oh, don't don't. Good luck with that. You cannot change another person. That just doesn't happen. You can change yourself. And that's what you need to focus on. How, how can you be better? But so changing another person. And he's struggling with that very thing. How do? How can I change her? How can I change another person? Because I want her. I want these things about her. Maybe I can change the parts that make it impossible to be with her. How, what a realistic struggle. And he, he has this other line where he says, The world was full of stories where brave souls were seduced to evil. Why couldn't it work the other way? He wanted to seduce her with good. That was such a creative line of thought on his part. I th- I, I liked the priest thing because um, he was talking to an I- Iomidean priest. And I think what he said, although it might have seemed a little weak, it was more like he was saying, you believe in Iomidae. These are Iomidae's tenets. Did you break any of them? Like it, The little line he uses is like, did you dishonor her? Did you lie to her? Did you make her fall- false promises? No. And I like, I love the little subplot they put in. Not really subplot, but the little detail they put in that, um, she asks Adaris to hit her. They get a little violent. That's mm. something, you know, that's a vice they have. And he says, did you exceed what she asked you to do? And he says, no. Like, you never at any point, according to Iomade's tenets, broke any of her tenets. So why are you struggling with yourself? You know, is this, do you think you failed in someone else's eyes? Or do you think you failed in your own eyes? Or do you think you failed in her eyes? Like, where do you think this failure lies? Because it's not in your faith. Right. And that's where I kind of disagreed a little bit, which is weird. Like, I'm not, I'm no expert in the Amadean faith, but I think it's the the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, and the, the idea is that he's this is a, this is a forbidden fruit, and he knows it. And there's no, you can explain it away. You can try to use all this. There's the many tenets of somebody who's being with somebody they shouldn't be with, of all these logic. But you know what? There's something deep inside where you know it. It's built into you. You know this is wrong, and you can try to explain it away. But you know what? The, you know the truth is there, and it's hitting you inside, and it's hitting you in unspoken words and feelings that you can't shake in in ways that logic cannot shoo away and that's what he was struggling with and what i didn't like is the priest was like eh, those don't matter i think they do and i think that that testifies to uh anyone's faith in reality there's things that don't break the letter of the law that break the spirit of the law and i think a paladin is always very focused on the letter of the law so i guess it makes sense that a priest of that kind of faith is like what does the letter of the law say and that he would be swayed by that 
But I think there was also a part of him as being a paladin is that he wants that spirit of the law as well. I almost seem like the Hell Knight would be like the letter of the law says this. So, you know what? Four things of silver. I don't care if you can't afford it. That's the law. Whereas the paladin is the one who might have mercy on somebody because he knows the spirit of the law. This person, oh, he is repentant and he doesn't have the four silver now, but he wants to pay. You know, what? We'll, we'll create some way where he can he can make this right because I see his heart has changed. That's how I feel a paladin would sort of handle that situation. But maybe I'm reading too much into it. But we talk about this. We kind of mentioned that they slept together. This was uh, kind of sort of a, a big moment in their relationship. They're in this investigation. They're going to this very upstanding, uh, high society sort of opera and then party, right? And the opera was just an excuse to have the party, really. The, the person did have some sort of uh, love for the opera, but really it was like it was known for these wild, ostentatious sort of Caligula-like parties, right? Caligula, he was an old Roman emperor. He was famed for his debauchery. And while he's there, he's there. Edoras is there because he needs to further this investigation. There's somebody there he can talk to who knew his father, uh, who didn't talk much. Um, I just had a, a struggle. I, I must have forgotten something because I read this so far away. I thought his father was alive, but and then he's dead. What? Huh? His father marched. Then did his father... Who did he talk to? Was it his grandfather? His father marched and he had the devil chain and all that stuff, right? And his father died. I don't, it wasn't his father. I think it was his like it was either his grandfather, or his uncle, or his great uncle. Okay, like sorry, that. sorry. His father was his father wasn't the one with the devil chain. It was his uncle or something. Uh, okay, okay, because his father's still alive. Sorry, I, I misspoke. Whatever. His his family member, his ancient family member, uh, att- uh marched on Gestana, Gestana, whatever it's called, the Gestapo. Uh, but anyway, so somebody there that knew him and could explain because he he actually mentioned talked somewhat to her so he's like maybe i can get some more information so he has to be there and he doesn't want to be there and it's like oh here comes the debauchery and he is almost sort of tricked because the food is laced with drugs so he drinks he eats and he's finding his he's beginning to become inebriated and he begins to lose control and all the stuff's happening he's like ugh i don't want to be a part of any of this he finds the person he's talked to and the person says tonight's not a good night let's meet tomorrow and he goes okay all right, let me go find Valen, who kind of helped, because she was master of, po- of politics. She was the one that was able to twist things and work things, and it, it was, whether he wanted to admit it or not, she was perfect to this investigation, because uh, she had all the pull in the city she needed to have, especially with her, her her house ties. And he finally finds her, and she also has ate the dry lane food, and she's more than willing to, to, to give herself over to these things, and the two get together. Handled very, I think, tastefully, don't mention nothing about it. Uh, just enough of the details that you need to know, like that they wanted to, that she wanted him to hurt her, and he kind of struggled with that. Um, but let me read. Let me read another portion to you. Her perfume, however, was pure Cheliacs, a rich, opulent amber, inflected with the incense and smoke of Asmodian ritual. It was far headier than the scent she'd worn as a girl, and once more overtly sensual and more formal. As much closer to the truth of her as the red and black of her Diabolus dress, the perfume of a wanton empress. He came up behind her and touched her waist slightly as if pulling her into dance. Let everyone think we're closer than we are. Have you have you been waiting long? Valm turned smoothly, the silk of her dress warm under his palm, coal and silver dust accented her eyes, shimmering when she smiled. Fifteen years, more or less. This is, this is with, uh, a little bit before they ate all the... The food. It was such a. I always loved the struggle between the two of them. She's like, it's been fifteen years, and I've wanted you ever since. So I just love. Her. She's constantly these little daggers, these little attacks to him. There's a point where he kind of like 
he can't be with her before I kind of unfortunately I skipped ahead when I was talking about all the drugs before that point right before that point he's like seeing her but he doesn't get the opportunity to stay with her because he's constantly being enthralled by like her perfume and being around her and the touch of her dress and the way she's carrying herself and he's just like almost like I have no tool I've been fighting demons that's what I've been working on how to resist is you know evil monster things from the abyss I have yet to really have to fight this these temptations this has not been there's been a lot there's been a lot of girls over in the world who saying hey buddy come over here not not a normal struggle and now he's really having with it and it was a point where he was as much disappointed as he was relieved when he couldn't really talk to her because she was around you know schmoozing with everyone and that's a realistic temptation part of you wants it wants the forbidden fruit and part of you of course doesn't want knows that it's it's wrong when it comes to the situation and i really thought that was interesting and again a good struggle for him because you know what it was it wasn't that it was good and evil like of course that was almost an analogy almost i think in a way could be and i don't think it's a perfect analogy for like cheating it's like oh man you really want this you want it so bad but even like oh pfft. I was I'm, I'm I'm disappointed as I am relieved when the situation stops me from going any further. You really want it, but you know what's wrong. But there was the constant tension between the two of them was just like I was eating it up. I'm like, ooh, every time I came to it, I'm like, give me more. The person he was looking for in that party was the wife of his, I forget if it was his uncle or great uncle that marched on the Order of the Crux. So she, he would have confided in her stories of what happened there, and they're trying to find out more of what happened on the march in Citadel Gasteno, so that's why he's seeking her out at the party. So he finally, you know, they, they sleep together, and he feels bad, and he goes to the priest, blah, 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 blah. But then it gets to what's happening now. He finally gets to meet with this lady, and she tells him, yeah, he marched on it, uh, explains a little bit of what these people did and what was so bad. And he said, you know, he never really told me what it was that was so bad but they had something and he finally was able to put to to words the devil heart chain and that that existence that you something they were doing with that was was so aghast that the hell knights had to march and uh he didn't like it he had to fight against his own uh squire uh but he walked away from it he was one of the few uh, many people fell on that battle because of, of course, its position. Um, and then we finally, we're, in, we're, we're at chapter 13. We're, we're halfway through the book. And she, she also mentions in that conversation that um, he was very cold after that. He wasn't talkative. He just always kind of seemed in a depressive state after that. He was a very cold person, and he wasn't like that before. So the, the, whatever happened there obviously deeply disturbed him. Which was the same case with my grandpa. He used to have, he would never, ever talk about it. It took years and years and years for his grandchildren to become cognizant enough to ask questions before he would ever ever answer any questions about the war because it was just it was just so horrifying and i i think that's it was well represented here it's just so horrifying i don't want to talk about my grandpa used to have nightmares he'd wake up in the middle of the night screaming and i realize now that when you read later into the story a little plot point that comes up actually makes the reason why she said that he was cold to her afterwards makes much more sense that was actually a two-sided story we could take it as you know, he was kind of had PTSD or we could take it as something else that we learn later. And the truth of it is never really revealed. Why don't you mention that now? Because I know we're going to forget it when we come to it. You had mentioned his squire mm -hmm. that he had to march against. Uh, turns out he had a thing for his squire uh, and she ended up creating the devil heart chain or at least had a hand in creating it. And they run a foil to Adaris's uh, grandpa or whoever it was and Adaris and like you know you want this forbidden fruit you just like your grandfather wanted something that was bad you want to fix it you want 
you know, you don't want something that's good. You want something that is it's somehow tainted so you can fix it. You have that vice. And we, we don't learn if that's true, if it is the fact that, you know, he was cold to his wife afterwards because he actually didn't love her and he loved his squire, mm-hmm. or if he had PTSD. Right. And I think like most things in life, it's a combination. Exactly. So chapter 13, we finally get to, and it's almost like almost kind of jarring in my opinion, but I think it's a perfect time for it. We get to uh, Setchel and kind of describing her and her going into the Citadel, Gustiana, whatever it was called. I'm going to keep calling it whatever I want and get over it. And uh, she meets with this character, which I think was one of the coolest, quote unquote, throwaway characters. It was this this druid, this undead druid, Octal. And he was, he was very interesting because he was this guy falling apart. And it really, it did a great job of him talking. He would have ellipses all over his talk. Because he would, it would pain him to talk, pain him to move, pain him to do anything. He was, uh, you find out later, he was somebody that kind of, a guy seeking fortune and glory, seeking fortune and glory, or try to undo what happened in Citadel Castano. And the, and he goes there and he loses a course and Lichter Schokner, uh, punished him for it and, and made him live this undeath with pain in every step and forced him to tend to gardens that he could have moments of reprieve from the death in the castle to remember that there was life on the outside. And he was a very interesting character that was forced under this, this, um, Grave Knight's control. And so, like, he, there was a part, like, he wouldn't move quickly because he would be afraid that if he moved too quick, he would lose parts of himself. They would fall, they would fall off. But anyway, he's just, he's a messenger. He talks to Setchel and says, uh, oh yeah, the deal's been changed. And she's like, what the heck? And he's like, don't get mad at me. It's, it's Lichter Schokner's. He wants you to do this more. And he's like, ugh. He's like, find these three people and bring them here, which is set, which is our three main characters, Valen, Jeral, and Enderas. And she's like, fine, because she really wants something. And what is that something, Christian? Setchel wants to be a human, an absolutely unprecedented idea ever. <laughs> um, but the, the the bigger part is that Setchel believes that she is the way she is because she is not a human. She thinks she kind of buys into the Order of the Crux's ideology and that she is the way she is, an assassin, a cold-blooded killer, someone that enjoys causing other pain causing others pain oh i shouldn't say that she's not a sadistic person but she's kind of a very amoral person she is fine with killing people for gain she blames her evil on her blood not her soul and she wants nothing more than to be a weak defenseless human she would tear out her fingernails because they were claws she would hurt herself because she hated the way she looked and that's really the depth of Setchel's character. But what I was saying earlier, and that it's kind of purposeful in that way, is that she does get her wish. Lichter Schokner, for a time, turns her into a human for succeeding at her deeds, doing his bidding. And she's still the same exact person. She is still amoral and willing to kill to gain. And she kind of looks at herself in the mirror and she's like, yeah, I'm a human. I'm better now. And then it kind of goes into her thoughts and she's still like, hmm, well, who, who can I kill now? Like, what's the next target? It's like, well, well, she didn't change at all. Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, didn't see you there. My friend Christian and I were just playing some role-playing games. Hey, Caleb, do you think these guys would be interested in joining us? You know, I bet they would. I mean, if they listen to Pathfinder Academy, they gotta be cool, right? If role-playing games are your thing, why don't you guys check out our other podcast, Trailblazers? Trailblazers is an actual play podcast where you can see many of the concepts addressed in this show come to life. Season 2 of Trailblazers has been great so far, and I especially like that you can get into it without any prior knowledge of Season 1. It's definitely a fun adventure, especially if you like mysteries and a dash of cyberpunk with your fantasy. If high fantasy is more your style, then consider giving Season 1 a listen. 
You can listen to Trailblazers on this very feed. We've got a bunch of other ways to listen as well, so go to our site tblazer.net for a complete list of the ways that you can listen. So go ahead, grab some dice, and join us. All right, Christian, you come across an obviously important character to the plot. What do you do? I immediately shoot him in the face. Ugh, Christian. This, again, kind of like, this is where the, the author has a good sense of, my readers might get bored me throw this in. There was that, you know, original thing, and I need to throw in Velen, and now it was, okay, I'm talking too much about this relationship, I need to throw in this part at the Citadel. And it goes back to the relationship. I think it's it's good sense uh, for her. Uh, but it it talks about, they wake up in the morning, um, Edoras and Velen, and he's like, he feels so bad, he gets up and he wants to leave right away. And she's like, what, you're leaving? No, oh, so bad. And he's like, you know why I'm leaving. And she has this little toy with him. And there's this, like, there's this um, this thing that shows that Edoras isn't just, like, just so enthralled that he's to the point of an idiot. That half-lidded smile was too easy, too intimate, too much. It was a smile that said no one had ever pleased her so well. And he didn't believe it for a second. He hated that it made him jealous, but it did. He hated that it excited him, but it did that too. Everything about her put him off balance, and he hated that most of all. Yes, that. It was, this is the the struggle that continues with their relationship, where he's like, I want it, and I know it, but I know she's just, she's either using me, or she's just, she's not a good person. None of this is reciprocated. I'm doing this because I love her. There's some part of me that loves some part of her. She's doing this because it's fun. She, we finally get kind of a glimpse into her. There's a point where they're kind of going back and forth, and she says, I failed to follow your reasoning. Velen rested her cheek calmly against a forearm. I never asked you to change. I would never want you to change. That would spoil everything. You must be what you are. It delights me immeasurably, and I'd be heartbroken to lose it. And you kind of find out she, as much as she loves being physically beaten, she loves she loves this emotional roller coaster. She loves this bittersweetness. If he had just given himself over to her, she wouldn't want him anymore. She loves the struggle in him. She loves that it, she brings it out of him. The fact that he says all these things elates her. And now we're finally really getting into who she is. She's more than this Diablo. She's more than this cunning person behind a a gleaming smile this this deadly red but she can no she's more than that she's having these these she's having some of the same sort of struggles uh edros is on a completely different level and they're completely different struggles but she's having them she has a real reason she likes him and it isn't something as throwaway as oh the toy's done being useful i'm not having fun with it anymore there is something deeper there whereas he's loving these parts of her that he might call good she's loving these parts of him that make him who he is that's as much of a real thing as the parts he loves about her and it may seem on its face something to throw away oh she just likes the fun the struggle the back and forth no she likes what makes the struggle she likes what is to his core his convictions that are so strong and she just doesn't she doesn't like the fun just to oh i get to pull the convictions out of him make him betray them no if that ever actually happened if she was ever actually successful then that would be a failure in the relationship to her she likes that he won't give in even when he does in these ways that appears to be giving in he's never giving in in his heart and she loves that about him it's a very interesting love i think but he has this very real struggle where he doesn't want to be just another one to her. She doesn't want he doesn't want to be just another one of the guys she's been with, even though he knows that's what he is. And we get a finally like a glimpse, he's not just another guy to her. 
But of course she will, she's not going to let him know that. And this is where the priest, I'm sorry, I jumped the gun so early before. This is where the priest finally talks about it, but we already talked about that. And I know that we're only ha- we're halfway through the book now, but this is going to go much quicker because we're about to get into some sort of combat thing, which is where it's like 10 minutes of combat takes 200 pages. So don't worry. <laughs> look, look at the podcast length. I doubt there's another hour left. Oh, gosh. Is there like three hours left, guys? Please, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> so now we're going to move over to sort of the friendship that's sort of developing between Edoras and Jeral. And she is a person who's deprived herself of friends. Hell Knights don't have friends, right? And there's a part where these partners are starting to become friends naturally. And she's kind of like against it. And he's like, what's the what's the deal, brah? And uh, <laughs> when asked, uh, she's like, I, she's explained to him, listen, I don't get friends. We don't get afforded to have friends. It doesn't happen much in our my line of work. And Ross goes, don't you want to change that? Don't you want a friend? And her response is, I, I don't know. It was surprising to realize that. But once she said the words aloud, Jerome knew they were true. I don't know that I've ever really had one. Even my old comrades during mercenary, my mercenary days, there were always some walls between us, some things easy to overlook when we were fighting, impossible to bridge when we weren't. What, what, a, what a packed sentence, impossible to bridge when we weren't. And somehow this paladin was getting through these walls. And even in small scenes like that, we get snippets of things we didn't know about Jeral beforehand. I didn't know, today was never mentioned before that she was a mercenary. It's never anything that's really delved into, but it gives her just a little bit more of a, you know, pillar that her backstory stands on that made her the person she is into today. She wasn't always a hell knight. She did things beforehand. And, and this is the lesson I'm going to, I'm going to try to take away with you the realize the reason that these characters feel so deep is because their internal struggle feels so real. In this whole friend conversation that they have that lasts a couple pages in this chapter 15, they are careful with the way they choose their questions. On the inside, they're they're assaulting their, themselves with do is what I believe right is it even correct? And but when it comes to using words, you're presenting that firm, decided outside to the marauding questions. I think we do this all the time. I think at least I can say for myself. I, it's the way I almost develop and change the ideas in my own head is I'm outside trying to do everything I can to prove and to explain why I do feel and hold the beliefs I have. And if I can and if I can continue to do this and the person debating or talking with me can still continue to hold their ground at the end of that conversation, you might say, man, that guy's never going to change. But you know what? You don't even know that you just changed my mind because every best argument I had, you shot down. And I think that was so well depicted in that friend conversation. Not a malicious way, not an assaulting way. I said marauding, and that, that was only to describe the how many questions were coming, not the manner with which they were presented. Uh, this was all kind of sort of kind-hearted. Uh, but I really that was that you've made a real character by showing real struggle on the inside, and now. The, the, I don't need to hear this paladin was a righteous man. He fought 500 wars. No, that was enough to make me think this is an interesting character. So after they have this little friendship conversation, someone, uh, a signifier, which is the spellcasting version of a Hell Knight, comes to them as like, hey, something's going on with the uh, the bodies, the lifeless Hellspawn bodies. And Veline wants you to come there right now. In fact, you know, we have this little teleportation scroll. And even just the short little use of the teleportation scroll, they have a little description of how, like, they experience vertigo through the teleportation scroll. And it's probably something I'm going to be talking about later. The descriptions of magic and, you know, mechanics from the Pathfinder role-playing game, the way they're written in word just translate, she translated them beautifully 
to actual written word and ideas. But they teleport over to where the tiefling bodies are being held, and they're clearly suffering. They're kind of dissolving away. They're um, shuddering, seizing almost. And even though they're lifeless, they get the idea that they are in pain. Gerald can't stand that idea, so she goes to one of the ones that are remaining, because they're kind of dying off one by one, and makes a decision to try and kill this lifeless thing before it has to suffer like the other ones it did. Because I think part of that was it's her own race, and she's really identifying hard with these people. Right. So she takes a dagger and tries to cut the tiefling's throat, but that doesn't work. So then she has to cut the head off of this person with the knife, and it's it's going over everyone's reactions to what's happening. And it's kind of what you would expect. Valine kind of turns her head away, but isn't super disturbed by it. Um, Adaris is obviously horrified by it and then they go through this whole scene this whole chapter where she's doing that where gerald is in her hell knight armor and she is standing up straight and she's doing her duty to get this done and she is as cold and as flinching as she ever looked in her armor and there's a great little line from adaris um when she's in the pro this process of putting this person out of their, their misery where he has the thought of this is the cost of failure when this is the greatest mercy we can give, we've already lost. And I just thought that was just great to getting into, you know, his head and his beliefs. I agree. I actually wrote down that quote as well. It's cool that we both wrote that down. I think it's just an interesting thing to transcend this book, I think. But then we get into the next chapter where G Gerald goes to clean off after doing this thing. And we get into her thoughts because that whole chapter was actually told from Adaris's point of view. Oh, and yeah. We, we never really Gerald. mentioned. Let me just interrupt you for one quick second. Similar to the Bloodbound book. The book alternates, not exactly um, every other, between the different perspectives of the two main characters, Edoras and Jarl. With the occasional uh, sexual chapters. Right. There's only like four or five of them of the 30-odd chapters in the book. But, but the next, after that event, Gerald just kind of goes to clean her armor off, and we go from to her perspective, and she is not cold and unfeeling at all. I'm just going to read a little bit from that chapter. It took hours for Gerald to scrub the blood off herself. Her scales were the problem. Blood caught under their edges and wouldn't come out. She either had to soak herself in a hot bath or scour herself raw to get clean. Quite often, the Hell Knight didn't bother. She simply waited for those last stubborn traces of blood to dry and flake away. That wasn't an option today. The sight of the Hellspawn woman's blood, even reduced to a ghostly, near-invisible pink tinge liming each scale, filled Gerald with shuddering revulsion. That scene made me shudder. I was thinking of like when she's using this coarse stone, this pumice, I think, against her. And I could, like, I'm just picturing like these scales getting pulled up. And it's just like, ugh. Then she took a block of pumice stone and scraped it across the residual stains over and over uh! until her scales were frayed and flaking. Uh! And the, ro the rosy taint underneath was not her victim's blood, but her own. Uh! And, you know, she she's doing this alone. She cleans herself off. She goes through this whole internal struggle of what she just did. And then she puts on her armor and she marches back off. And none of the other characters really know the struggle she just went through. Yep. In that scene, I liked what the uh, description of the cutting off of the head with a knife. Um, what a creepy sentence. Not in that way. Uh, but there's a point where uh, the author says, Sweat cut waveries, pink streaked lines through the crimson spatters on her neck. And I could totally picture that like the blood turning from red to pink because of the sweat the water mixing in with it it's, it's a great picture a, a well done description of that picture and uh going back to sort of uh, who valen is 
Valen describes when they dissolve. They're like, what do you mean they dissolve? And she goes, they melted. Like snow on a warm day. Or paper eaten by fire. Their flesh seemed to almost turn to fog. And she just kind of just describes it like that. And she's using like almost sort of beautiful language. Because to her, that is something that's beautiful. So, yeah... There, there, there. There's this isn't your typical. Oh, let's put take the glasses off the librarian and undo her bun. Oh, she's beautiful. The Diabolist is just good inside, right? No, this Diabolist is a Diabolist, and she finds that alluring. She described it with beautiful language because she thinks it's beautiful. Where the rest of us be like a horrible, terrible, dissolved monster thing. I don't want to talk about it. She's like <laughs> snow on a warm night. So then Lichter Schnokner gets all uh gets all unpatient, impatient, and gets angry at. Um, Adaris and Veline and Gerald and decides to have Sechel lure them to Citadel Gastano so that he can ta- exact his vengeance on them. Um, on Gerald because she's part of the Order of the Scourge that, you know, stamped out his order. Adaris because he's part of the Paladins that also marched against uh, Citadel Gastano. Uh, Veline just because she works for House Thrun and there's this whole political aspect of how House Thrun is involved with the whole thing, and that's never very clear until the end. It's purposely that way. Mm. In the end, probably a bad decision for him, but... Sechel buys some children tieflings. Uh, she knew the children would appeal to the paladin, the tiefling to the hell knight, and then the paladin would deal with getting Valen to come along. Um, and Which, it, it was, she bought them totally legally. You, yep. you can totally do that in Jellyax. A hundred percent. There's no no lawful or way that a paladin or a hell knight could intervene. These are bought, and they know exactly what's going to happen to him. And pretty much taunted him with the rest of the armor of the hell knight that she had killed earlier. And she said, "Meet me at Citadel Gustiano. I'll see you there." And and it was like a spit in the face because they all knew it was a trap, and they all knew they had to go. Uh, during this, this is like a conversation that happens between Valen uh, and and Edoras. And the, the the relationship's coming to a head soon. And they sleep together again. And he's feeling less bad about it now because of his conversation with the priest. And there, there's more about her and how she loves this relationship. And she's constantly calling him an idiot. Because in her mind, he really is. She, But it's always, like, affectionate. She calls him my cherished half-wit. You great confounding idiot. Different things because she's always like, you think... That this way, this is the way to do things. That's that's not going to work out. You've got to do it like this. Oh, please. You really think that we can be together and that it'll be fine. You really are my cherished half-wit and stuff like that. And it's just really affectionate. And she continues it through the rest of the book, even in the middle of a battle. And I love it. Uh, and there's a point where she she kind of like gets heart to heart with him and mentions uh, something about him. And, and he kind of brings it up again. And he says, you know, uh, they're talking about getting her to go. And he's like, we still have to go. You told me once that you admired my passion, my faith. This is what these oaths mean. We can't abandon those children in the Citadel. If you meant what you said, then help me. Her response. Had I known you were prone to throwing my compliments back like weapons, I would never have given you any. A lesson for another time. Velen sighed, immensely resigned, and flicked a hand in wave of surrender. Fine, if you're so determined to kill yourself, I suppose I might as well go along to watch the screams. <laughs> Her own way of saying, fine, I'll come. I guess I care. But of course she would never be like, I care. I mean, I'm going to just come to watch you die. Baka! <laughs> but Valene would never blush, though. No. Well, I maybe mean, she would because it's red and she really likes red. And when I think uh, Jarrell's like, why are you coming? And she says, uh, uh, 
Evelyn says, I'm resigned to letting our charming companion of Iomade march bravely into doom. I understand he's made a career of it. What I'm wondering is why, if you had any idea of what we'll be facing, the two of you arrived alone. Do we have no Hell Knights marching with us? No Crusaders clad in faith and glory? This is terribly disappointing. Also stupid. <laughs> it took the entire Order of the Scourge to bring down Citadel Gustiano last time. I'll remind you, and they had allies. We, by contrast, are three people and a dog. Like, she is the most realistic of this whole group. Like, really, we're going to be doing this? And they explain why they can't bring uh, allies and stuff. Like, the Hell Knights were like, no. The the Lictor is in his own castle. I see no reason to go shake that 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 bee's nest. Let's just leave that alone. Um, but there's other reasons and stuff. But I just, like, she was like, she's coming because she loves him, but she'll never say it. And she's always going to be saying all these things. And she's constantly like, this is a stupid. We're doing a stupid thing. We really shouldn't be doing this. We're all going to die. I mean, well, I'm not going to die. I'm going to get out of there. But you guys are going to die. But I think she truly, she, part of her believed that she also was going to die. So don't worry. Now we're coming to the end of it. It's time for the march on Citadel Gastiano. The second march with considerably fewer people than the first march. And considerably more undead Gastiano citizens. Occupants. Uh, Caleb mentioned a dog. Uh Valine has a kind of familiar that follows her. It looks like a dog, but it's suggested that it is actually a very powerful devil that is sworn to her and has to follow her duty or follow her word. But it, it, anyone like to most people it just looks like a dog. But to Gerald and Adaris, they recognize it for what it is. And they're actually very afraid of this dog. We don't see it do very much, but they just, you know, they're just looking at it and describing it like something's very wrong. It's way too smart. I think it could kill me. I don't really want to be around it. Yeah, that was part of it. Like once in a while they mentioned like when it would walk, it would leave half inch gashes and stone just from the way its claws were. And that's scary. But what really whenever they describe why they were scared it was because of its intelligence. Which kind of helps them. When they finally march on the, cit- the Citadel, they are assaulted by these flames that come in the eyes of some s- skulls. These blasted skulls, as they're always described. Uh, everything over there is like, covered with ash and soot, but never could you wipe it off on the Citadel. As they cross the threshold, these things uh, pierce their minds and force them to relive sins of their past. Volan said, follow... I forget the name of the dog, but follow Veros. Veros. Pharos is a devil. It's not in his nature to go against law, ever. Not because he's stronger or better or truer, because he has no free will and thus he has no capacity to sin. Villain's smile was small, tight, and bitter. That's what it, that's what this is, you realize? It's showing that none of us can live up to the crux's measure. That we all that we're all failures against the ideal of perfection, because you and I do do have free will. Because we're not devils or angels, but people. And people do not exist in absolutes. That's the flaw they find so abhorrent choice and the capacity to err freedom and the chance of failure cracks in the stone where flowers might bloom gerald had read that somewhere that was a good explanation for what is something that a uh, trope oh you're gonna really listen to my past no i've done all these wrong things how do i go forward this why though no one ever asks why the answer is because the gm thought it'd be a cool little moment right they gave a great reason why because because the order of the crux that's what they wanted to show us that were failures to perfection. And that's why we can't survive. And then the dog, the demon dog, gets them through because, oh, I've never done something against the law in my life because it's against my nature. I don't have free will. The Citadel, one of the Citadel's defenses were, you know, walking across the bridge, there are magical skulls that was forcing, uh, from the perspective of Gerald, to relive things that she was disgraced in. And it was just another perfect little moment of describing the character's past that we didn't have before. And it says she's seeing a theft, 
Another voice, another fragment of memory. This time, Gerald saw herself, pregnant at 17, stealing toward a farmhouse in the dead of the night. The farmer's daughter had left her wash drying on the lines after dark, and Gerald wanted one of her blankets. She had nothing so fine of her own, and no money to buy a blanket that might be warm and soft enough for her child. So she had stolen what she needed, and then the winds of chance had blown her away, and she had never repaid that debt. Like, what, what a powerful... Just one little paragraph that describes so much about Gerard. That was very powerful to me. There's a battle between uh, a bunch of demons and two grave knights. And they actually handle it fairly well. Velen's like buffing them with all these super cool spells. And they're just working through using their training, their power. And he's constantly calling on the might of Ioma Day to smite these devils. And they destroy them and they take the helmets off the grave knights. And there's skeleton monster dudes in there. Wait, that's not a skull knight. Wait, huh? They weren't Hell Knights. These were tricks. And Valen notices right away. She goes, well, crap. They just forced us to use our most powerful spells against underlings. We really are falling for this trap hook, Lion Sanker. And she's constantly self-aware. And I love it. She's just, I feel like it's, that's what I would want to be. I would want to be the person like, oh, I'll keep marching in. But I'm going to be realistic. We just made a dumb mistake. And we're probably going to die now. You mentioned Velen buffing them up and casting spells. And all she's doing things from the actual mechanics of the game. I just want to read like some of the things they do. She ex- ex- describes the way her doing some things that I can immediately recognize like, oh, she's casting bull strength. But it's just written so well. Here's a little description of Adaris using channel positive energy. Adaris waited until the enemy Hell Knights were almost within reach and then raised his sword to the heavens in prayer. Iomade's glory filled him in a rush that ignited his soul. Golden light erupted around him, tearing through the mass skeletons in a curiscating nova. Bones exploded into dust as the divine fire seized them. Rotted leather and rusting mail, unable to protect their wearers from the inheritor's wrath, burst apart into flying scraps. The force of his prayer leveled the horde, devastating all but a few wobbling stragglers at its fringes. He he does that a few times, and like I said, there's a lot of things that, you know, you'd be like, oh, I cast, I use channel positive energy, it does 3d6 damage. Like, imagine if you could roleplay and just come up with little bits like that off the top of your head. So they finally get to two of the real grave knights. There's three grave knights here in the Citadel Gassiano. Of course, the Lord, the Lictor is the chief one, the arch one, but then there's two kind of underlings. One of which being his uncle's squire that had developed the Devil Heart Chain and all that. And and there's this wonderful battle that happens, and she is this kind of wizard, but almost like a mage. She is like a sword and has like all this ice stuff on it. And she's very she's got the undead cold thing going on. Every there always has to be one undead that's all into cold. The chilling, icy chills of death down the nape of your neck sort of thing. Uh, the chilling chills, the best kind of chills that are chilling. And I, I like the battle. The battle was cool. And what I really liked about it is that they lost. Edros didn't overcome the different debuffs, as 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 terrible as that word is, that this this Grave Knight cast on him. He felt weak and he just, he, it wasn't like, and then, you know, deus ex machina in came this person and saved the day. no. They lost. They they slew one of the Grave Knights, and I liked really liked every time a Grave Knight died, the bells of Gastiano would ding, 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 and that would signify one has died. Uh, but Grave Knights always come back. It, sometimes it's longer than others, but after a bit, they always come back. But they lose because they, they were set up from the start, and they were just outplayed, and they knew they were going to be, and there's nothing they really could do about it. And they wake up in prison. One of the reasons they were they lost is that the... One of the Grave Knights threatened to kill the children, which Gerald dove in front of to save them. And 
the dog, Varos, kind of um, corralled the kids out of the castle before they lost. I'm glad you brought that up because that was a defining moment and and sort of the end of Velen's character arc because they're losing and there's a point where they can get the kids out. Edoras sees it and he can't do anything because he's, he's tangled with his grave knight. And he yells, Velen, get the kids out of here. And she's like, I'm a little busy at the moment. He's like, get the dog to do it. And she says, do you understand that you're asking me to die? And he says, if you've ever actually loved me, please do it. And she does it. She makes the dog corral the kids, which does it in a very demon-like way. He's not nice. He's like, come over here, little puppy. They go out and he gets them out. And because they don't have the dog anymore, which they were barely surviving with, they they lose. And Velen, who was struggling against the assassin, gets hit with twin daggers that were poisoned. And she honestly gets the worst of it. So essentially, this is a, this is a thick sentence, but Velen died. She knew that's what she was doing, and she made the choice. I think it was finally the moment of she admitted, finally, out loud, you know what, I do love you in the way that I can. And she was willing to die for it. And she ended up not dying, uh, as we'll see. But she essentially did, and she was ready, and she thought she was going to. It was a great moment of sacrifice done by the most evil person in the group. We kind of go to Setchel's perspective. And this is, I think, the biggest blunder of this book is Setchel has the struggle with, you know, I think that this tiefling blood in me is what makes me evil. This hell spawn is what I blame for all the evil in my soul and in my life. Uh, if I can just change, I'll be better. And I thought, okay, this is a huge commentary we can do, the author can do with this. You know, I finally turned human again, only to find out, oh no, it isn't my blood that makes me who I am. It's my decisions and blah, 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 whatever the author wants to, uh, to communicate. None of that really comes through. I'll say I'm glad because the book's already 400 pages long. It would be another 100 pages to do it justice. Uh, but however, this makes Setchel a sort of shallow character. Setchel gets a reward finally, which... I'm surprised she even took the job again because, like, the Grave Knight already once went back on his deal. What he makes you think he's not going to do it again. But he keeps his, his – she goes, fine. He turns her human. She's like, oh, this is amazing. And he goes, all right, I want to make another deal with you. And she's like, what? Uh, I kind of have everything I need. And he goes, uh, you need money. I'll give you your choice riches. Just do one last thing for me. I want you to take these out into town, and I want you – to make their death a show, and I want you to bring the city down around them. These three represent powers that have been on the brink of war forever. Use them to tip it over. And this is part, we finally begin to see some of Lictor's motivations. He, every time we've been talking to him, and she and Setchel like questions him at times, like, why do you want these guys alive? And he's like, just, this is what I want. And it, like brings him back. Well, now you just want to kill him again? He's like, no, they will die the way I want them to, to show the world exactly what I want to show them. And he's still keeping everything close enough to the chest. He's not like, well, let me explain my evil plan. He's, he's still, uh, I think, menacing. And that kind of loses a little bit as well, because he's introduced so late in the book. The explanation of exactly why he's doing things is kind of sits to revenge, but it's not deep enough, I don't think. And we will learn a, a little bit more, but it kind of is lost. And we'll talk about, I think at the end, I'll ask you more about what exactly was he going to do with all these hearts and such. I disagree uh, with you a little bit with how you're describing sexual. She never has that moment where she's like, oh, no, I'm actually a bad person. She becomes human and she's like, this is awesome. She doesn't want to be good. She wants to be unremarkable. That's actually what she's going for. She wants to be weak. She wants to look weak so people underestimate her. She never actually has that inner dialogue where she's like, I'm a good person now. 
they, they, she, the author never has her say anything directly. It just shows her going about her business. So she becomes human. And then the lictor's like, hey, I want you to arrange a political killing of these three people. And, you know, I'll give you money. And Sutchel's like, well, if I'm going to start my new life being unknown, I'm going to need money to do that. So she's like, okay. And then she immediately goes to the garden. And she she has like a couple pages where she is cold calculating a political murder of three people. And that's just who she is. She never actually has that inner dialogue, but she's she spends like maybe an hour like, how can I make these deaths interesting? How can I tie Adaris killing Velen mm-hmm. in a righteous way that the Cheliacs people will disagree with, but the House of Thrun will defend her? Hmm, that's who she is. She's cold. She's calculating. And I she doesn't want to be good. I think Octal says it at some point. I can't find the line exactly, but he says her perfect world would be if she walks in a room, it's a brand new story that no one's ever heard before that ends the second she walks out the door and no one can remember her. That's that's my problem. It's that the beginning of why she was why the author stated her motivations was because she wanted to get rid of like you said she believed the what was what was the the venom spat out by these by the order of the crux that just being this makes you evil and then it's kind of thrown aside like she's still the evil person she does kind of mentioned a little bit of um this will be the last thing i have to do that's evil and i can finally like, i'll have enough money i don't have to keep doing all these murders but it's like barely mentioned like even to the point where you didn't even remember it right now that's my problem christian is that the author said this is her intention and it's kind of forgotten about it and it was such a shallow intention and there was not brought to any culmination of of an arc for her there was no arc for her it was the, it was the I, smallest I, dumbest arc I don't think the author actually ever said that. That's something I attributed to her actions, but I don't think it's ever explicitly said that Seshul does believe that. I think it, I, th- I thought it was that again when she was when it was articulated why she wanted to be human in the first part, not in this chapter, but in the first chapter we we are introduced to her, um, not the first chapter of the book, but like the halfway chapter twelve. Anyway, like, I, I don't think I don't think I like I agree in that I don't think it was um, you know the greatest arc ever i agree that it wasn't like the best arc it obviously would need to be fleshed out more but i don't think it's as shallow as you're making it out to be he's writing notes about how i'm wrong christian is wrong get new podcast partner all right let's go to the next thing um i do like in her chapter she goes around to the different uh rooms in the castle of the different grave knights and they're kind of cool like the ice one for the 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 lady who made the Devil Heart Chain, uh, Octal's room, the cool, like, only room that actually has plants in it, has all these little orbs that are essentially his life essence to keep these things alive in in an environment that just wants to kill and everything. And she has to make a deal with um, the the Grave Knight Squire Lady to get her plan, and part of the deal is she has to get this, this almost horn that would steal thoughts from somebody, right? Steal some of their secrets. And she's like, she has to make a deal to get it. So she's using this on each of the the prisoners. And they use this to kind of play a trick on her. Octal kind of has to watch over because the process takes a while. And the paladin, which is, this is a really cool moment of it kind of, his character that was something different than everyone else. It was a power that he had that no one else had. It was a power of character. He saw the good in people. And he saw Octal. This is not a hell knight, a grave knight. This is not an evil undead this is someone who's been forced in this position i see good in him but i see hopelessness so he tried to give hope and i think it's a point where like val no not val because she's in a coma from the poison and almost dead only survived because 
Eridas uh, healed her, but couldn't take the poison away, of course. Gerald said, this is something that, this is what you do, you give hope to people. In a very not lame way, which I stated it just now. I don't, I don't remember if it was Velen or Gerald that said earlier in the book, but one of them said that, like, it's not necessarily that um, you yourself are so good that you bring out the best in people, but people see where you are and that you're engaging with them and you make them want to be the best person they can be for you because you are trying to be their friend. So while this is happening, he kind of get reaches into Octal, kind of heals him enough that he can talk. And it's really cool because you see, like, the way the author does it is his words come, there's no more ellipses. And then slowly, without mentioning that he was getting worse, the ellipses would return until the sentences were just full of ellipses. And you could tell, oh, the healing faded and he was back into pain. The the healing of Octal is one of my favorite moments yeah? of the book. Just this one little paragraph that Octal says right after he agrees to let Adaris heal him. Yet some of the pain seemed to leave him. The agony of his breathing eased. The lines of suffering in his face softened. When the maimed man turned his head back toward Adaris, there was a clarity to his gaze that hadn't been there before. It won't last, Octal said. The whispery slur of his words had smoothed into a clear tenor. He'd had a beautiful voice once. It can't. You've poured life into a leaky vessel, and it's flowing out of this poor shell already. But thank you all the same. Mm, that was good. I loved Octal. He's such a good character. So he kind of reveals to them the deal behind Satchel, what the deal she made, and that the deal was bogus. When they pursue it, he says, um, he, speaking of Lick the Lictor, he can make the promise. Octal's eye was a gleam of reflected torchlight behind a lank black curtain of hair. Would it tempt you to? You're nothing like her. Why do you want so badly to be something different? Sometimes changing yourself is less painful than trying to change the world. Gerald met the crippled man's scrutiny without blinking. But you said Lictor can only make the promise, not the transformation. And you find out uh, the only within the confines of this castle and for some small amount of time, thanks to uh, a, a necklace, a magical necklace Setchel has received from the Lictor, um, will she appear human? But it's appearance only. She's still a tiefling. And they need some way to convince Setchel that this is true without just being like, oh, I'm not trying to trick you. This is true. Of course, she wouldn't believe him. So when she reads the memories, she sees the truth. She tests it, finds out the truth, comes back to the castle, and uh, a pretty much uh, Lictor's not an idiot. And he realized she took off the necklace and... Uh, she now knows the truth and he sends his minions against her. It was a cool scene where like she constantly is walking through this dead area and the skeletons just ignore her as if she didn't exist. And then she like goes back into the castle and then she's talking about like the skeletons are like just walking over, looking over a piece of meat and they drop it and they all just slowly turn to her and she's like, oh yeah. And then she goes into like this combat with them. Uh, it's pretty cool. She like throws down this gas, puts down these goggles to see through it, uh, this, this mist she creates. Pretty cool. Oh, I, I skipped something real quick I want to talk about is I'm, um, there's a, a kind of a chilling threat to get them to use this memory thing on themselves. She plays off of each other in a really cool way. Um, oh, by the way, I just found a line that fits what you said where she wanted to be uh, unnoticeable. Neither plain nor pretty. She was so perfectly forgettable that she could have lost herself in a crowd of three. Oh, that was one of my other one of my favorite lines. I forgot to write that one down. You can accept the siphon or I can take your lover's face off with a knife. I won't kill her. She'll live at least until she wakes up. Then I think she'll probably kill herself because she's too vain to live like that. Threatening to carve up his lover's face is quite quite an interesting threat. I, I like that a lot because it was moving. It's like, I'm not going to kill her. I'm not going to maim. I'm not going to take off her arm. But to carve up somebody's face, that's so intimate. 
And I think that's definitely something that a villain would be very upset about. She was sort of a vain person. Uh, however, the plan works. She lets them out. She gives them back their weapons. Said, I couldn't get your armor. It's too well protected. But I've done my duty. And he's like, fight with us. And she's like, ah, no, bye. I've gotten, I think I'll keep this siphon. That's all I need. See you later. Uh, by the way, if you try to betray me, uh, I learned enough secrets about you that I'll use them. Uh, and I'll say hi to your daughter for you. So essentially, leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. Uh, that, that's how she'll get her revenge by letting you guys out and ruining his plan. I guess we could see it as since she never actually turned human, if she was really turned human, would it have worked? Would she be a good person? Maybe that's why she never actually changed because she was never actually turned to a human, just aesthetically. We'll never know because it wasn't explored. <laughs> oh, yeah. So they're, they're fighting their way through the castle right, to get their armor. They have to go against one of the, the Hell Knights, uh, uh, Grave Knights, sorry. And so that they don't just walk into traps. He keeps using Detect Evil, and whenever he uses it, Flynn sticks out like a sore thumb, which is great. I remember, actually, I did that one of my campaigns. They had a party member who was evil, and I, and I had a paladin on the party, and he would keep using Detect Evil. And I'd be like, oh, you want to take everything? Oh, by the way. Uh, but this guy sh- sticks out like a sore red thumb. So it's like, Velen is still, this, uh, you can't be like, oh, she's redeemable. She's still evil. And he would talk about she was well detected evil. It was like a faint aura. It was like a red apple disappearing into the the leaves of i'm not good with illustrations all right guys please stop um that's what you're saying to your to your 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 earbuds right now but they eventually get in they get they find the the bone forge where they find all their armor oh the yeah, bone smithy the bone smith these detect eagle does find the trap and he's like hey listen this guy when we last killed him he used a lot of fire spells i got demons they kind of don't mind fire so she summoned a bunch of demons. They went forward. Devils. Devils. Sorry. Whatever. And they go forward. They get the fire. And they're like, okay, thanks for the tickle. And they attack. And there's a cool battle. Blah, 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 blah. They get their armor back. And now it's time to head off to the Lictor. And they do. And a great battle ensues with Lictor and the Squire Lady. And when they get there, in the ceiling are all these Devil Heart crystals. And so while they're fighting, Villain destroys all the crystals. And then there's a really cool... Really, really cool scene, I think, with Valen encompasses all her power. She channels it all into herself to become this living archon of of this evil essence around her. And then she just shoots out like Fulgore's beam from Killer Instinct. But just instead of a blast of energy, just a blast of darkness and, and evil and just like wastes away and dissolves and disintegrates uh, the the squire lady. And it's so cool because it takes two blasts. The first blast happens and it like it talks about like the whole front of the armor and you can see the skull and stuff is all like dissolved. But it was still alive and she's like, oh, you're still alive, huh? And it does it again and just like f- dissolves the person to the point to the the bing, ding, ding of the bells. And, you know, another grave knight died. And then finally we get to the cover of the book, which isn't accurate because it takes place outside and in the battle it takes place actually on the inside. Jeral's the one fighting uh, Lictor and she kind of gets her 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 vengeance of and he's like, I'm a I'm a grave knight. What are you going to do? Ooh, you kill me. I'll be back in, um, I don't know, two days. And she's like, it doesn't matter. The law says you die because of your crimes. So you're gonna die. This is the part where I really want to have a discussion about what was the plan, Christian? Because in the end, I don't know what it is. He's threatened her. It's like, well, you know what? Long long when you're dead and your kids are dead and your name's forgotten and everyone's even forgotten, you existed. I'll still be around and I'll make this all happen again. You can't stop me. I'm a very patient man. What was his plan? What was he going to do with all these things? I understand he hated it in a core level tieflings and he wanted to stop them. I, I don't know, understand the plan, Christian. Explain the plan to me. What's his plan? What's his end goal? 
Well, like you said, no one cares about Castle Gasteno because he can't extend his influence outside the realm. With the Devil Heart change, what what we learned at the end there is that he can actually take control of the Tiefling's bodies after a certain point and have absolute control over anyone whose heart he had stolen with the Devil Heart chain. So he was basically amassing an army of these lifeless people that he would then have absolute control over and could send out to do his bidding. But they were so weak. Talk about in, in, in the final battle in this castle they were cutting through them like skeletons they were so pathetic because they were just people they weren't trained soldiers mm, that didn't happen valine had to blow them up and they had a really big uh, moment about it yeah i thought they were cut through easily yeah valine they, no, they never just because they, they, they were they, they never they, ne- they were gerald and erderis couldn't bring themselves to attack the tieflings brought against them so valine blew them up with a fireball yeah sure but somebody who didn't share their dispositions would be able to easily kill them because talk about how weak of fighters they were I don't think it was necessary to be fighters, though. It was to extend his influence outside. Because okay. he, he could, they could leave the castle and he could still have control of them. So the f- I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure myself, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was. I will say that that wasn't articulated very well. And there, and there was the horror of it, of the fact that these people still kind of were alive. They weren't undead. And they were trapped in their own bodies in a way. And I get that, but... There's, there's that whole bit at the end where Valine's talking about the political implications of what they did and what the future holds, and I didn't understand a second of it, so don't don't trust me to <laughs> explain some parts of the plot to you. Okay. The second she started getting political, I was like, um... I agree. Yep. I, should, the, I should understand this, <laughs> but I don't. At the end, they... they Gerald gets to kill, and there's the, the final, the third bell. They finally defeated the Lictor temporarily, of course, and they destroyed all the hearts so that there's no no crystals left for him to use no bodies left and he takes the um uh they take the chain they split it into two again one stays with the hell knights i think and the other is some weird political stuff uh Valen uses and that that's where edoras sees like from even in the middle of like a life and death thing she's still the machinations are turning in her head to turn this to a political thing to help her house and I'm sorry, I don't, like you, I don't remember exactly how, but essentially House Thrum was going to come off top on this and it was going to be well protected so that this would never happen again. But I think they thought it was well protected before, but we'll see. This time it's not, it's not in the house of some random dude and the Hell Knights know what they have now. So it's going to be well protected. One half is protected by the Hell Knights, the other half protected uh, by uh, whoever the Thrun's, the House Thrum gives it to. And then there's like a nice little, I actually... Can I be honest, Christian? I hated the epilogue. I think the book would have ended, would have been great before. It was like, Eduras and uh, Valen, it's like, oh, I think we're going to be together. He essentially proposed to her and she accepts and she's like, you know, this is going to be bad for you and your family. He's like, I don't care. I want to be with you. It was, that was the point where the relationship was the cheesiest. I think it had already consummated, uh, no pun intended, at the end there when she sacrificed her life for him and they were pushing beyond that. And it was still like, oh, she still has her own interests, and but she's still going to be doing things to be with him. That was enough for me. I didn't need that to, to yell to my face, hey, uh, she's still going to be with him. There's still going to be you know, her own interests. No, you already informed that to me in the final book, chapters of the book. And then I think you're just playing that wrong. She doesn't accept. What do you mean? She does, she does not accept. She, no, she does. She accepts in the ways that she does everything, where she's she's not going to say how she feels. She's that, but, always going to guard but it. You're but, making it sound like she's like, yes, I love you, and I do. But no, she says like... I want many things. They don't all fit nicely together. Allow me time to think on it. If I agree, we'll have to negotiate turns. Right, which is her, which your way of saying, yeah, she never ever just tells him how he feels, how she feels. Wait, it's it's not like she changed her character though. Like where do you think they were uh, going? No, go I'm not saying there? she changed her character. I'm saying the author in a very intricate and cool way without treating me like an idiot already told me that in the final chapters of the book. 
and then he actually okay, okay, spelled it out in the epilogue, which I didn't need. I felt like that was the only point in the book where the author didn't respect the intelligence of the reader. You understand what I'm saying? Hmm. Maybe. I felt like it added nothing. It just made things super... In case you didn't get it, here it is. I'm like, I did get it. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> the one, the only thing I did like was the thing with Draw. Nice. She wrote a letter to her daughter. And it's like, oh, I, I, this is one thing I don't have to lie about. Let me tell you what this cool story about what happened to me. How I killed Grave. It's like, oh, you killed Grave Knights? And she's like, oh, I did. Let me explain it to you. And then Setchel didn't care about her epilogue at all. Added nothing. Hated it. Go away. I really didn't like Setchel very much. I, I, I kind of agree with that one. I get anything that Leanne writes, I enjoy reading, and I enjoy some of the lines from Setchel. But overall, it's like, I'm still an amoral assassin that doesn't care. She had no arc. It's like, oh, I mean, I'm still the person I, I, I was before. No justice for me. It's like she, she goes and she kills someone because she's paid to. And she says... Who the young man was and why he'd been chosen made no difference to her. Setchel didn't care who the corpse behind her might have been. Which I think that is an interesting line. Like, that's an interesting mindset to think about. Like, this person's dead. Why would I care? That's not my story. That's not the road I walk down. It has no effect on me. Right, which is great. Um, but then it, then it goes on to say, What did that matter? Many roads were closed to her, and none of them were of consequence. Each mortal was given only one path to tread here anyway. Only one set of choices, one life, one line. Hers was one that she knew how to walk. There was a peace in that, in knowing, and accepting. It had been foolish to imagine anything else, to pretend. And it's like, eh, well, you're right. I don't feel like that really adds much to her character. She's still saying, yeah, I'm the same person. Yeah, Hanfus attempt she, to have a moral. I am what I am, and I always will be. Well, that's a meaningless sentence, don't you think? Yeah. And that's, that's Hell Knight, Christian. What'd you think? Did you like it? I really enjoyed this book. I think, and I think it's just mostly because of the writing style. Like I said, I could read anything that she writes, and I just... The ideas she conveys through written word just astound me sometimes. Like yeah. like I said, I can open to any page of this book and probably find some paragraph, some sentence where I just I, – I could read it over and over again. It's like, wow, I never really thought of it like that, right? Yeah. You know, to word something like that, it's, it's beautiful. I agree. Great book. Uh, where are you going to put it on the order of the books we read from most favorite to least favorite? That's a tough one. Um, right now we're at – we've read two books so far, so we're at, we're at uh, Bloodbound – as our favorite, and then uh, underneath that was Pirate's Prophecy. I might put this one above Bloodbound. Um, I think they were equally enjoyable, but I would actually contemplate reading this a second time, hmm. which I don't think I could say for Bloodbound. I feel like I got what I needed out of Bloodbound, but there's a lot of stuff that you talked about. Um, you obviously read much deeper into this book. Uh, I have difficulty reading into like themes and motifs and symbolism and stuff. Um, I feel like there's a lot of stuff I missed. Like, a lot of the scenes you were talking about with, uh, say, Valine and Adaris's relationship, like, there were some things I had picked up on. I That was my favorite part of this book. That's why probably why I picked up on it so much. I, I, I love romance. We did a romance episode, uh, which you guys should listen to. We have a great guest, Kyle Ferguson, on that episode. And you kind of mentioned that it's not really something you have a lot of experience with in-game, um, whereas whereas I have because it's just something I really enjoy. So I, it, it makes sense to me that's something I picked up on this, this part of the book. However, I am going to put Bloodbound over Hell Knight. Slightly. Whereas I did like that theme here in this book, and I liked a lot of this book, a lot of book. It's very close for me here, very, very close. In the end, I did like uh, the characters better in Bloodbound, I think, than I liked them here in Hell Knight. And in the end, I walked away satisfied, whereas here I still was a little confused of what the plan was for the big bad bad guy. But yeah, I definitely close. I pu- I put the characters and the writing as the pillars of Hell Knight that stand at the tallest. Whereas I don't think the plot was as strong as, say, Bloodbound. Mm-hmm. But definitely both great writers. It was a very hard choice for me. But, yeah, I'm going to go Bloodbound, Hell Knight, Pirate's Prophecy. Christian. We didn't talk about Octal enough. Octal's my favorite character. He was great. He was great. Christian, you want to say more about Octal? I'm ready. Go ahead. 
Oh, wait, we talk about his ending. We didn't talk about his ending. What happened to him? Yeah, so we didn't mention that the garden in Castle Gasteno, Lictor had captured Octol because he recognized him as a druid to create this garden, Castle Gastano, since he couldn't leave the confines of the castle walls so he could see a bit of the world outside, but it was running off of Octo's life. Like, he was slowly dying to keep this garden alive. So it was his one way to get at the Grave Knight to take it away from him and end his own suffering. Oh yeah, you know what was really creepy about him? He had sewed parts onto him, part of his lover, that he entered that building with mm -hmm. as punishment. Like, his fingers were split in half, and half of them were his lover's fingers. Uh, Adaris brings him out uh, past the limits of Castle Gasteno, and he just falls apart because it was the magic of that citadel that was keeping him alive in this half-dead state. And as soon as they got over the bridge, he started dis basically dissipating and dissolving and withering in his arms and eventually just became a skeleton without the magic of Gesteno sustaining him. He definitely was a cool character. Quick character. There's another one that's like, a hey, throwaway character, but I'm gonna make him super interesting. And I just love the idea that he was, you know, from a band of adventurers, like a normal band of adventurers. I was like, hey, I bet there's cool stuff in that evil citadel. Let's go raid it. <laughs> yep. We bit off way more than we could chew. <laughs> oh no, please stop. This is wrong. Oh, we're dead. <laughs> Alright, I want to talk about the, the the future of this this segment. Uh we have so far what so far, we've been given seven books to review. We just finished number three, right? <laughs> um, and so we are are struggling only in the case that we can only read so much, right? And uh, our original plan was to read each book as it came out because they came out bi-weekly. Just to give you a little bit of history here, from 2010 to 2015, four books a year were published. And then in February of 2015, things were handed over to Tor Publishing. And then I think it was in June that they uh, switched to their bi-monthly format. The first one of that was Lord of Runes. In January of 2016, we were contacted by a representative from Port Tor Publishing. And they gave us uh, Bloodbound as the first book, which was released December 1st of 2015. And so we knew at that point, bi-weekly books, we'll read the next one and we'll just keep moving down the line. But we just cannot keep that pace. Um, unfortunately. So we have all these books to review, but we just don't have the time. I want to give you a, 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 a quick little thing. I have four classes right now on on um, master's level courses. And of just two of my classes, I have to read over 1,800 pages. And that's just from books. I'm not counting the countless articles and passages of scripture that I have to read. It's overwhelming. That's just two of the four classes. I just... And I, I have endless pages on the internet of memes to read. <laughs> so I just literally don't have the time to read all these books, which is unfortunate because I, I really do enjoy this. And I'm actually very honored that they that they um, decided they reached out to us. Uh, it was kind of for me, it was a moment of, hey, we, we've kind of made it a little bit that somebody recognized us enough to, to offer this. And we really appreciate it really with the bottom of our hearts. And and, and we, we hate to say something like, oh, I just can't, I can't review every book so we're going to be a little more selective of what books we are going to review we're totally continuing this series i love it and i love being able to be a part of this but it just cannot be at the clip we want it to be unfortunately we really wish we could review every book so the next book we're going to do is reaper's eye this is the latest book to be published uh the next book is actually coming out in like a like two weeks but that one's not quite out yet christian why are we doing reaper's eye personally i really like the cover art it's got uh this girl in like this 
robed attire with bright orange hair and she's like fighting a bunch of zombies in red robes and she's got like a hand crossbow and there's arrows sticking out of their eyes and I just I really like the art <laughs> all right that's a surefire reason to design on anything in my life <laughs> uh you know anything about the book at all According to the back of the book, uh, we actually, in Hell Knight, talked a bit about the world wound. Adaris was from the world wound. He fought there against the demons. This is actually going to take place in the world wound. A ex-crusader and a pathfinder are going on an archaeological discovery somewhere in the world wound. Interesting. All right, guys. This one's uh, considerably shorter. It's about 100 pages shorter than the book we just read. So read along and follow along with us if you want. Thank you all for attending the book fair. Class is dismissed. Pathfinder Academy is part of the Trailblazer Network. For other great Pathfinder podcasts, visit our site, tblazer.net. Want to get in touch? You can email us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at tblazernetwork. I've been Nicholas Laborde. Thanks for listening. make love to my wife tonight. Oh, well, um, uh, next time I'll, uh... You know, I don't even know if I love her anymore. I don't really know her. Like, what am I gonna do? Someone should tell Jacob that people change, and it takes effort to stay connected with someone. But in the meantime, the fellows at Tales from the Lich always stay connected through gaming and friendship. When you can't play, listen. TalesFromTheLich.com Hey, uh, happy Valentine's Day.